Welcome to GW Central Asia Program podcast series. It's time, I think, to begin. Good morning, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this online seminar of the Central Asia Program at the George Washington University. We are meeting here in the, the middle of the summer to discuss uh, Afghanistan, Central Asia, and the resurgence of the, the Taliban, which is, of course, the, the kind of the big news for, for the region, and that will continue to be probably in the forthcoming uh, uh, months. So we will be today looking at how the Central Asian states, both as state and as local uh, community at the border, I managing the new situation of suddenly neighboring Taliban governed uh, uh, region. And for that, we have really three great speakers with incredible uh, fieldwork experience. Let me very briefly present them. We will have Melanie uh, Sadozai, who is a PhD candidate at my alma mater uh, in Paris, the National Institute for Oriental Languages and Civilization who is working on uh, Gorno-Badakhan and uh, globally on the, the region, the, the neighboring, sorry, the neighboring region of Tajikistan and Afghanistan in the Pamirs and who is just back from, from uh, Dushanbe yesterday evening. Then we will have Jennifer Brick Murtazashvili, who is Associate Professor of International Affairs and Director of the Center for Governance and Markets at the University of Pittsburgh. She has published a very uh, famous book, uh, Informal Order and the State in Afghanistan, and her second book, Land, the State and War, Property Right and Political Order, with forthcoming with Cambridge University Press. And she has also been doing a lot of uh, ethnographic and survey work across both sides of the Afghanistan Central Asian border. And last but not least, we will have Antonio Gustozzi, who is currently a senior research fellow at WUSI in London, who has published six or seven or eight uh, books on, on the Taliban, the last one being Taliban at War with Oxford University Press in 2019, and who has been also doing a lot of fieldwork in Afghanistan, among, uh, uh, especially in Taliban region, but also in the, the northern uh, region of Afghanistan. So you see a really incredible uh, combination of uh, scholars. Once again, welcome everybody. I will give the floor to each of them for about 10 minutes and then I invite everybody to ask questions in the chat, and then for the second half of our uh, time, I will be moderating uh, the discussion. So, Melanie, would you like to begin? Sure. Let me um, let me start by uh, sharing my uh, my screen as I will be talking. Uh, you, you will see a time lapse video of uh, of um, the, the Taliban's advance uh, to the northern regions uh, of Afghanistan. Um, and, but first of all, let me thank you, Marlene, for, uh, for this event and thank, thanks to the Central Asia uh, program for uh, putting together this, uh, this event so fast. Um, I, I will offer a view from the micro level, that's to say the, the level of the border between Tajikistan and Afghanistan. Um, and uh, you, can, you can see on the, on the map here um, the, the, the northern regions. Uh, I'm talking about this region, the very northern part of, uh, of uh, Afghanistan, um, and mainly um, all along the eastern part, so the, the, the northern areas of, uh, of the Badakhshan uh, region. Uh, I will stop sharing my screen, otherwise you'll see my, my notes, and that's not super convenient, uh, but you have an idea of the map um, and, the, and the region. Um, so yeah, I, I will talk about the micro level, and I will elaborate in, the, in the five main points, and I hope this will um, help us um, kind of zoom out on what's going on in the Central um, Asian region in, in general. The first aspect I'd like to mention is, um, is the historic, um, actually the historic aspect of what happened at this border, the border between Tajikistan and Afghanistan um, in the Badakhshan region. The, the 5th of July 2021 is actually the first day that uh, the border communities in Afghanistan uh, see, uh, have seen the Taliban. I'm talking about specific districts. Um, so that was Shernan, Eshkashim, and Wahan, which are to the, to the east side of, uh, of the border with Tajikistan. And um, uh, they are um, mostly inhabit uh, inhabited by Ismaili, um, Ismaili people. Under the Taliban regime in the late 90s, those regions were under the control of Ahmad Shah Massoud, and they were protected from the Taliban. So that's why it's very, um, it's unprecedented to see the Taliban there uh, when they arrived uh, at the beginning of the, the month of July. 
What's historic too is um, how fast the Taliban took control of those districts. Um, nobody I spoke to along the border, whether um, in Afghanistan or Tajikistan, even government officials, um, you know, the population, uh, civilians, nobody uh, was expecting the Taliban to arrive so quickly. And that's another key point to highlight. Um, there, there were rumors spreading, of course, people knew that the Taliban were advanced north and getting closer and closer to the villages. But um, the fact that they fell so quickly was not expected at all. Um, it all happened within 24 hours. Um, the, the Afghan diplomats in Dushanbe said that during one night they could track um, the, the um, hour by hour that the one district was falling, then two others, then three others, uh, two hours later. You know, So that's how fast it all happened. Now, uh, along the border, we can very easily see the, the Taliban flag, which appears in um, strategic points, um, namely the cross-border bridges between Tajikistan and Afghanistan, and at the centers of the, the villages in Afghanistan. So in, in the district of Darwaz, um, the, the Taliban had already been in control before July 2021, but in the Smiley inhabited area, areas, it's, uh, it's absolutely unprecedented. That's the, the second point I'd like to, to mention, the, the specificity of those cross-border regions uh, in Badakhshan. They're mostly inhabited by uh, Ismaili people, like I said, um, even though they are Sunni communities in uh, Darwaz and also um, in the Wakhan Valley where the, the ethnic Kyrgyz um, uh, are living. So one feature of those border areas is the coexistence of these different communities um, of the Sunni people and the, the Ismaili people and they have been living at peace. Um, even today, as we're speaking, uh, those regions are calm. Um, and ever since the Taliban arrived, they've been um, quiet. No violence has been reported, no harm, um, no use of violence against the population. Um, actually, what happened was that before the Taliban arrived, the, the Afghan forces had already gone to Tajikistan. So um, there, was, there wasn't any opposition when the Taliban came into those villages at the border. Um, the civilians were not willing to fight or to resist, and it's, that's why it's been calm ever since. Um, now, um, what, what people say is that those Taliban, and I think, I think Antonio will, um, will talk about this, the, those Taliban are from Badakhshan, so they are aware of um, the coexistent, uh, coexistence of, uh, of the communities along the borders, and so that's probably why they're not using violence. Um, that may change, I will mention this later, but so far, the border between Tajikistan and Afghanistan has um, remained, um, remained calm. So the third point is the Taliban policy. Uh, very concretely, what, um, what happened was, uh, like I said, the Taliban entered the villages without resorting to violence. Then they held meetings with um, the population, namely with um, village uh, leaders, um, people who had responsibilities, so um, directors of clinics, for example, and they told them not to worry, that they wouldn't be violent uh, against them, that the Ismaili people could continue practicing their uh, religion. They did not have any issues with that, but they implemented new rules um, targeting women. Um, so women now in those border areas for the very first time of their lives are, um, they have to wear, um, to cover their face, they have to wear the hijab, and they cannot go out without being uh, chaperoned by a close relative who's a man. Um, so that's, again, that's very new in those uh, areas, um, and, and women can still continue in some places to work. Um, for example, uh, there are women doctors. The Taliban told them they could work under those new rules, right? So that's going to be um, uh, a real problem in the long run um, to, 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 to see, you know, how, um, how it's, it's going to, it's going to raise concern on the, the, the conditions of those women and how they can actually continue to work properly. Now, another element regarding the Taliban um, policy is that uh, in those areas, they, they act like government officials. Um, they collect taxes from people, whether it be money or crops. Um, they charge transit fees in the Khatlan province of Tajikistan. Um, so they, they control the, the border crossing points all along the border. And there's one border crossing point which is actually functioning. Um, they, uh, they want to reopen uh, also the cross-border market, so they really want to show that they act like the, like the, the central, uh, central government. Um, but the government of Tajikistan has refused so far because they, um, they refuse to deal with anybody, any uh, form of government that's not the Afghan government. Um, so that's, that's an interesting point. Uh, the fact that the Taliban are, are, are trying to show that they can be 
uh, a functioning uh, government. Um, in, in my opinion, as long as the Taliban do not have uh, the international legitimacy of being recognized as a state, they won't be able to deal with the Central Asian countries. So the, the, that's, that's a hurdle uh, for the Taliban in those cross-border regions. Um, the, the fourth point I'd like to mention is um, we have to be very careful with information on social media. Uh, there's a lot of different news coming from different sources, and uh, some of them um, have not been, um, are not true actually. They, they don't go along what's going on at, at the border. Um, we have to remember that the Taliban arrived very recently, and um, there's no single policy that has been announced by, by the leadership of the Taliban, and even within Badakhshan. Um, the same rules are not implemented in, uh, in, in all the districts of, of Badakhshan. Um, it varies from one district to another. Uh, in the Kunduz area, it's not like what's going on you know, in, the, in the, the, the far eastern side of the border. So obviously that is impacting the, border, the bordering countries of Central Asia. Um, instability is much more visible on the western part of the border of, um, of Afghanistan. It's different on the eastern part, like I said. Now, for example, uh, we, we could see uh, news on the social media that um, um, people were crossing the border massively to Tajikistan, uh, including families. Actually, the, the people who crossed the border into, into Tajikistan before the Taliban arrived were Afghan forces and civil servants. Um, most of them have been sent back to safe places in Afghanistan. Um, another uh, news that was uh, that, that were spreading was that um, the, the um, Tajikistan was hosting a, a refugee camp in in Badakhshan, in near the city of Khorog. Again, um, that's not what we have seen on the ground. So um, there are some news like that that are spreading because on all sides uh, there is, in my opinion, a battle on information. Um, the, the Taliban opponents share news very fast. The Taliban are using their own propaganda very fast too, um, on Twitter, for example, on YouTube. So there is a critical need um, on this topic to triangulate information. Um, I, I'm going back to my first uh, remark when I was saying that what's going on there is historic. Um, I think it's because it's historic that you know all kinds of news are spreading. So we need um, to be careful and triangulate information. Um, to finish, uh, I'd like to mention the, the, the future and the prospects for Tajikistan, uh, because that's the question in everybody's mind. Um, it, it's hard to predict any, anything, of course, but um, in my opinion, three elements need to be considered. Um, A, if the Taliban leadership actually announces uh, one single policy, especially regarding the work of women and women in general, then things are going to take a turn. Uh, as of now, there's no single policy across Badakhshan, like I said. Um, there's no fighting, there's no shootings anymore. Whereas before, when Taliban were not in control across the border in some places, um, for example, across the town of uh, Kalaikhum in Tajikistan, we could sometimes hear shootings. Um, there's no more of that because they're in control and they're not uh, using forces, the force. Um, at the same time, from the Tajikistani side, sometimes we could also hear music and people uh, dancing in Afghanistan. There's no more of that either. So. Right now, yes, everything's quiet, but it's not for the better. And it's likely that it's a strategy for the Taliban to win hearts and minds before strengthening their power and enforcing tougher rules. So um, B, um, about the future, an interesting element is that there's no wave of refugees massively going into Tajikistan. Uh, some Kyrgyz, ethnic uh, Kyrgyz, uh, left the Wakhan Valley to go into Tajikistan, but now they're back. Um, so uh, all the refugees uh, who actually crossed the border into Tajikistan were sent back to, to, to Afghanistan. The question is why? why? Why no refugees? Well, again, because the situation is calm. So people are not, um, are not like, facing uh, massive violence. Also, uh, they're afraid because they know what's going on under Taliban control in other parts of Afghanistan. So they try to adjust to the situation. And we, we're also talking about poor communities who don't have the means to cross the border. But again, if it gets tougher, um, the, the, the Tajikistani authorities will have to face uh, waves of refugees and they're ready. They officially said that they were ready uh, for this scenario. Now to conclude, um, um, what's interesting in Tajikistan is that we observe two levels of, of perception. Um, the government is conveying the need for military support. Um, the government is mobilizing thousands of servicemen along the border and is um, putting them in, a, in high alert. Um, the, the 30 years anniversary of the independence is ahead in a few weeks, and Tajikistan does not want uh, this day to be tarnished. 
by a violation of its territorial sovereignty. But at the same time, they consider the possibility of, of neighboring Taliban regimes. So they have this um, very, um, you know, sort of um, two-sided two um, policy. But at the level of the communities uh, along the border, and I will finish with that, people are not afraid. They're not afraid of the Taliban crossing the border. They're not afraid of seeing a uh, spillover uh, in Tajikistan, especially in Badakhshan. They're concerned about their co-ethnics in Afghanistan and that they fear for them across across the river. Um, but they say that if the Taliban uh, come, they will fight back either themselves or their military. Um, life continues at the border. People still, you know, live at the border, do you know whatever they have to do. This we don't really see a big situation um, on the on the Tajikistani side uh, of uh, of the border. So um, to conclude, yes, the situation is calm. Um, the borderland areas are calm, but the question is until when. Thank you. Thank you so much, Melanie. Wonderful to have this kind of perspective from the ground. Let's now give the floor to Jennifer. Uh, thank you very much. Um, and thank you, Marlene, and your colleagues for putting this panel together. Um, and that was, uh, Melanie, thank you so much. That was fascinating and uh, learned a lot from, from uh, your presentation. I just want to take things up sort of a higher level just uh, in terms of you know, our unit of analysis to talk about what's going on in Northern Afghanistan and how that affects the countries of Central Asia, the relations between the countries, and uh, their relations with the Taliban. So as, as Melanie noted that this offensive in the North re really took everyone by surprise. It took uh, the Afghan government by surprise. It really seemed to take some of the communities by surprise. And it has certainly taken Washington by surprise. But the, the situation in the North, I think we have to put into perspective into terms of what's been going on there. I think as Melanie noted that many of the Taliban, uh, you know, they, they come from these communities. Antonio's written quite a lot about this, about the evolution of, of and the growth of the Taliban in, in the Northern regions. Uh, but there has been a raging insurgency in the North for quite a long time. And if we look at the International Office of Migration statistics since 2013, about one third of the population in Northern Africa Afghanistan has since 2013 has either migrated out to outside of the country or is internally displaced. That's one third of the population. So I think it gives us a sense of yes, this is this is a dramatic uh, move by the Taliban, but I think it may also explain why we're not seeing these large refugee movements because there has been um, so much going on there over the past uh, decade. Uh, but, you know, I think that, that the, the government of Afghanistan clearly has been taken by surprise here that, uh, you know, even among many people who I've spoken to at the very last minute, there was real disbelief that the U.S. would actually leave, that the government was quite unprepared uh, for what has happened. But what I'd like to do is discuss a little bit what's changed um, you know, in terms of there's been so many comparisons made about Central Asia 20 years ago. Um, I was working in the U.S. Embassy in Tashkent at that time um, and sort of had that view of what was going on in terms of uh, Central Asian relations with the Taliban and so forth. Um, but Central Asia and Central Asia's relationship with Afghanistan has changed quite substantially. The region is very, very different from what it was uh, 20 years ago. So I think there's real limitations to the comparisons that can be made. First, uh, the Northern Alliance groups in the North, uh, and these are the co-ethnics that Melanie has spoken about, right? So the Uzbeks, the Tajiks, um, you know, who share co-ethnics in, in Northern Afghanistan, they have been weakened dramatically. Um, over the past 20 years. And that is really the consequence of the state model that the US supported uh, inside of Afghanistan. So the, the state model intentionally weakened these groups so that the highly centralized state model is going to weaken uh, groups you know, in, in the regions. And uh, you know, leader after leader, well, the two leaders have tried to consolidate power in the center. Um, you know, Karzai did this, but Ashraf Ghani has really taken this to new levels. You know, and many Afghan colleagues have observed that it seemed at times that Ashraf Ghani was much more interested in combating some of these commanders in the north than the Taliban itself. And that is a perception. So he, uh, Ghani has been quite successful in mobilizing uh, many of these Northern Alliance commanders. So they have been weakened. Um, and so right now we see many of them in the North regrouping. And I think it's a real irony that the fate of the future of the Afghan government 
may not only depend on the national security forces that the US and the Afghan government has spent enormous, time, uh, enormous resources strengthening, but also on these uprising dynamics that are taking place right now. And it's really hard to follow the dynamics of this, of these uprisings. We're seeing you know, reports in different regions of uh, their strength, not seeing you know, overwhelming force right now. I'd be curious to hear what Antonio has to say about this. Um, so the, the weakening of the Northern uh, Alliance is, is quite uh, different. Their, its strength compared to it was 20 years ago, uh, they may not be the same kind of player. You know, Ahmed, Ahmed Massoud is talking about, you know, uh, gathering his resistance forces. We've seen um, Mohammed Atanur in the north uh, mobilize forces and call for resistance. Uh, so we'll see, try to understand the relationship between these forces and the government. Um, regional dynamics are very different. So 20 years ago, uh, the Central Asian countries really tried to block themselves off from the Taliban to the extent that they could. Although Turkmenistan did have diplomatic relations as a neutral country with the Taliban, the relationship um, between Uzbekistan in particular was quite frosty and it was almost if Afghanistan didn't exist. Uh, that governments in Central Asia really saw the Taliban as a threat, uh, was very unsure of how to deal with the Taliban and so you know, basically sealed their countries off hermetically uh, from the Taliban. Um, that has changed. And I think that there is a realization, you know, especially Uzbekistan has been leading this. Um, Uzbekistan in particular is really hedging its bets. It understands that the, the Ghani government is quite weak. It understands that the Taliban is resurgent. If uh, Uzbekistan wants to pursue the, the economic growth model that it currently has, right, and that, that has changed inside of Uzbekistan. It's its own growth model. 20 years ago, Uzbekistan was autarkic. Um, Islam Karimov relied on this, you know, very insular uh, economic growth model. Uh, President Mirziyoyev has a much more externally oriented model. His entire, you know, government really depends on trade and exchange, and that now includes the Taliban and that includes Afghanistan. So there is an understanding, I think, from from Uzbekistan in particular that if it wants to uh, generate economic growth and deal with its own domestic economic issues, that it has to decrease costs of trade and exchange. And uh, by accessing a port uh, in South Asia would decrease uh, those uh, costs to trade substantially and generate economic benefits for the, their own country. So we're seeing that Uzbekistan now has uh, quite amazing relations with the Taliban. I wouldn't say they're, um, they're best friends, but uh, they have quite uh, cordial relations and uh, the, the Uzbek government has hosted the Taliban uh, in Tashkent and Samarkand, visits them regularly in Doha. Um, and has signaled to the Taliban that it's willing to do business with them, regardless of who is in power, um, over the next you know, decades. And that is a really significant shift from what we saw before. Tajikistan's relationship is a bit ambiguous. President Rahman gave a speech last week where he praised the Northern Alliance, he praised Rabbani, uh, he praised Ahmed Shah Massoud. So, uh, you know, the, the Tajikistan's relations with the Taliban isn't quite uh, what Uzbekistan's relationship is. But if we're looking at what's happening at the border, we get an indication of what's to come. So uh, as, as Melanie pointed out, uh, the uh, Taliban controls border crossings uh, into Tajikistan. And we're seeing the Tajik government deal with the Taliban as a normal government. Trade has continued. They're accepting uh, trade papers um, from the Taliban, um, you know, engaging with them as if it is the, the government. So, you know, de facto recognizing them. Um, so I think that tells us that the government of Tajikistan is willing to continue trade um, regardless of who is in power um, in, in Kabul. We see the same thing in Uzbekistan, although uh, the Afghan government still controls Hayraton, the border crossing between um, Uzbekistan and Afghanistan. I think we have every reason to believe that if trade um, if the Taliban were to take over that border crossing, that the Uzbek government would be willing to deal with them. Um, so that is very new. So, uh, and, and I'll, I'll wrap, uh, Pakistan is actually another really important relationship. 20 years ago, Islam Karimov basically blamed uh, the Pakistani government for the rise of the Taliban. There was a really icy relationship 
uh, between the Pakistani government and Tashkent. We have seen that change dramatically um, over these past years. And in fact, you know, a couple of weeks ago, there was a regional summit in Tashkent and uh, Imran Khan and uh, uh, President Mirziyoyev signed a strategic partnership. And when I saw that happen, I couldn't help but think that this kind of relationship between the Taliban, the Uzbek government, and the Pakistanis had been somewhat cemented. I don't think that Tashkent or the Central Asian governments want the Taliban in power. I don't think if they had uh, you know, a choice about who would be in power, it would be the Taliban, but they understand that this is the reality. And if uh, there's instability in Afghanistan, if the Taliban are going to take over, um, then they want to know who they're dealing with rather than isolating themselves from them. So uh, finally, you know, what, what, should be, what should Central Asia be concerned about over the next uh, several years, sev several months, several weeks? Uh, what's going on in Central Asia vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Afghanistan? Well, I think uh, the refugee issue, you know, many people have raised it. I think Melanie raised it, but we haven't seen the number of refugees that many people have anticipated. I think there's a several reasons for that. One, you know, go back to this issue of displacement that's already occurred. So many of the people who can leave and who are mobile have left. Um, also, Central Asia it is not a place of migration in the imagination of many Afghans. Because these borders have been closed for so long, when people think about migrating, they think about migrating to center, to, to regional uh, cities, to cities along the ring road uh, inside of Afghanistan, or they think about Iran, or they think about Pakistan, or they think about um, Dubai, or they think about Turkey. So this is where we're beginning now to see uh, refugee uh, flows going from um, Afghanistan into Turkey. I just saw reports last week that the Turks are constructing a wall. Um, I, I haven't seen this confirmed, but uh, you know there's real concern in Turkey about the number of Afghan refugees. So uh, it doesn't appear that they're headed to Central Asia. This is just, I think, not in the imagination of, of many Afghans that this is even possible. Um, the economic integration pro, uh, projects, um, you know, this is something that the Central Asian countries and Uzbekistan in particular is quite keen on. Um, and it seems quite amazing that these uh, economic integration projects, which seem so unfathomable because of the security situation inside of Afghanistan, may have a fighting chance because uh, pursuing them is actually in the interest of both the Taliban and the government of Afghanistan. And so if Central Asian countries can get, uh, you know, agreements from the Taliban that they'll protect these um, infrastructure projects, they may have a way forward. So we may see these economic integration um, activities continue, but of course, you know, civil conflict inside of Afghanistan doesn't make that easy. And then an, another topic uh, I just want to end with, which I think is we, we hasn't gotten quite enough attention. I imagine it's something that Antonio will speak about are the Central Asian fighters that are inside of uh, northern Afghanistan. And I think this is something that is of enormous concern uh, to Central Asian governments. And, you know, for many, many years, we talked about the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, their associated groups um, that are in the north. But there has been a trend over the past several years where we, and even the past several months, I think it's heightened, although hard to confirm because hard to get numbers on this, that these are Central Asian fighters who are now going into Northern Afghanistan. And there was that dramatic uh, takeover of Mai Mai district in Badakhshan uh, earlier this year by Central Asians uh, you know, who had come from Tajikistan. Uh, to join the Taliban or to join the fight. Uh, it's not clear that, that, that the Taliban wanted them there, um, but the Taliban certainly do have leverage over the Central Asian states um, because of the presence of the Central Asian fighters that are there. Um, and I think this gives the Central, you know, the, the, the Taliban says that they have no designs over um, the Central Asian republics, that they will not allow terrorists to attack other territory. Um, but I think that the presence of these fighters do give the Taliban leverage over the Central Asian states. So if the, if the Central Asian states want to begin supporting and rearming the Northern Alliance, um, we see that the presence of Tajik and Uzbek fighters in the north who are of a new generation, right? So we know that so many Central Asians did go to, to Lebanon, uh, went to Syria and went to Iraq to fight, um, to join ISIS. 
And now the, the opportunities to engage in this behavior of militancy is right next door. And so this really presents, I think, a great threat to Tajikistan and to Uzbekistan. It doesn't take a lot of people to create chaos or, and chaos in the minds of the governments as well. So we recall in the late 90s, uh, you know, the IMU fighters came from Afghanistan into Central Asia, went through the border and, and the area near Boisun in the mountains in, in southern Uzbekistan. Um, so this, this scenario was actually quite real. Uh, not, that, not sure it will play out the same way, but the fear of, of militants coming um, from Central Asia, however few there may be, is a is certainly a threat, and I, I can imagine it's it's one area of leverage that the Taliban does have against the Central Asian states. So I'll leave it at there. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for these uh, wonderful perspectives on the different aspect of the the relationship. Uh, Antonio, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. So of course there are a lot of issues to address. I think I start from discussing the role of Russia and all of this, because of course, um, Russia has a lot of influence, uh, whether they like it or not, on what the Central Asian states uh, might do about the situation in Afghanistan, and also has got a lot of influence in Afghanistan, especially in the North. And uh, basically, the Taliban have been opportunistic in their uh, taking over of the Northeast, and more in general, you know, of what they've been doing around the country. I think they themselves are surprised by the extent of their uh, successes. Uh, but uh, essential in their success has been the agreement that they managed to reach with uh, Jamiat Islami, the party of uh, Saladin Rabbani, which has essentially facilitated the takeover of the province of Tarkar and Badakhshan. And it, I think there is quite a bit of evidence that. Uh, Russia and Iran have mediated between the Taliban and uh, Jamiat Islami. They've done other things in other parts of the country, but we're specifically focusing on, on the North now. And I think the, the strategy of the Russians, of course, they're not doing this because of just, you know, the law of the Taliban, but I think the strategy is that they, they have for some years uh, thought that the Taliban eventually would overcome. You know, they have a very low opinion of the Afghan government and the, of the security forces is based on their intelligence and of course the observation of what has been going on in Afghanistan for years. And they believe that essentially the winning horse in this race was going to be the Taliban anyway, whether now or 20 years from now, you know, that the only way to achieve stability was to somehow bring the Taliban in. And they come to the conclusion that the only way to do it, because they, they still have a reservation about the Taliban, you know, they interacted a lot with them. The Iranians more than the Russian, but also the Russian the last four or five years have interacted a lot. And it was a mixed uh, success. Um, they know that there are issues. They've experienced issues with the Taliban. So the strategy is essentially to marry if you like, the Taliban to get them to form a coalition with elements uh, of the groups, stakeholders, you know, they've been rotating in the past around the Islamic Republic. Jamaat Islami is one but they made an approach which is much wider than that. Some groups have not been approached with the Taliban uh, said clearly from the beginning, we will never talk or make a deal with Dostum and, uh, and his people. Uh, there are some other people they don't want to talk to, but basically if you take you know, the so-called Mujahideen, which in fact are the old Mujahideen of the 80s and 90s, all of them have been approached by the Taliban. The Russians have mediated with the groups in the North, the Iranians more in the West, the Pakistanis have also helped in the South. Uh, but to focus on the North, the, the, the real success has been uh, with Rabbani's faction. For a number of reasons, but I think the main one is that Rabbani, of course, has been marginalized by President Ghani, whereas some other of his party colleagues have been co-opted. You know, he was marginalized. And compared to some of his other colleagues, he's less interested in short-term gains. Um, and he, he was more concerned about the future uh, of his party uh, if Ghani uh, was going to remain in power. You know, and if, if Ghani's successor in a few years from now would also follow the, the same line. So I think uh, there was also the, the contest was not been totally clear yet, but you know, the, the recent dispute between Ghani and General Dossum in Faryab over the appointment of governor from, from the East, uh, I think is what actually triggered this kind of 1992 scenario where the northern groups 
believing that it was the beginning of Ghana's crackdown, decided to act. So they, they were organizing themselves to basically, uh, but it wouldn't be, of course, a complete autonomy, but essentially to try to limit the ability of the central government to influence and control the northern provinces. And they've been detected apparently by the security services as they were organizing this. And, uh, and then this dispute escalated, you know, the central government basically ordering the army not to collaborate with the northern militia against the Taliban. That allowed the Taliban first to drive a wedge between the militias and the army in the Northwest, and then prompted Rabbani to accelerate the negotiations, uh, seeing that all might be lost very soon and make a deal, which I'm not sure whether it is a deal yet in mind originally. I think Rabbani, like others, were hoping in a form a coalition among themselves and, and then make a deal as a, as a group, as a, as a coalition uh, of Omojadin with the Taliban, but there's been no time for that. So Rabbani decided to raise her head and make this deal. So now the situation is that uh, Rabbani's militias have not been disbanded, they're still there. They didn't uh, resist the Taliban, but they're still there. They have their weapons, they're not being disarmed, according to the army and police. And uh, well, it's difficult to verify, but the Russians appear to have paid a lot of money to Rabbani. I don't think it's a bribe, I think it's meant to consolidate the Jamiati militia into, if you like, a counterbalance of the Taliban. So, yeah, form a coalition. Uh, but it's not the honeymoon with the Taliban. I think there are, there are living concerns about where the Taliban will go once they take power. You know, they, they, I think the, the Iranians and the Russians are centrally on the same page on this. You know, they want to create a, a coalition where, you know, other partners apart from the Taliban are not just there, not like the liberal party in the German Democratic Republic, you know. They want them to play a more significant role in government as a, you know, real stake in government. And for that, you know, if you want to paraphrase Stalin, you know, try to demonstrate they still have the divisions, you know. So uh, they want to make clear that these groups are not finished, you know, that the deal is not a sellout, but they want to protect the interests. And for that, they need to show that they have fighting power. But this, I think, will become more apparent later. Now, this militia laying, laying low, uh, uh, they are in the villages. The distant centers are controlled by the Taliban, but the Taliban are quite thinly spread, especially in Taka, where they've never been very strong, but also in Badakhshan, you know, it was essentially not one of the provinces where the Taliban were strongest. Important to point out, the Taliban commander in the Northeast is a former member of Jamiat, and he always maintained a relation with Jamiat Islami. Many Taliban commanders had business uh, uh, joint ventures with the Taliban, over exploiting mines, over, over smuggling. So between the two, it was already some kind of, uh, you know, more than coexistence, I would say. So that's for the role of Russia and Iran and the impact that he has had. And then, of course, you know, the concerns are that the role of the Central Asian uh, fighters in the region is still uh, uh, a source of debate, of course, they're still there. Most of them now seem to be with the Islamic State. So that at least provides a good excuse, if you like, ideologically to the Taliban to fight them. But there are still a substantial number of them who are not aligned with the Islamic State. The Islamic movement of Uzbekistan is mostly now concentrated in the Northwest, but there are other groups and also some, some members that are new in the, um, in the Northeast. And I think there's also, you know, within Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, a desire to if you like, recover some of the Central Asian that have gone over to the Islamic State. It's been, over the last couple of years, quite a bit of back and forth, people defecting, going to the Islamic State, coming back, then defecting again to the Islamic State. So probably they hope they can, you know, recover some of them. Because the right will have to fight and kill them. It's not going to be easy in the valleys of Badakhshan. You know, the Islamic State is well entrenched in some of the valleys around the district of June, and dislodging them from this area is going to be uh, not easy. So they would rather try to co-opt or buy back as many of them as possible. But from the point of view of the Central Asian and Russia, the question mark, you know, these people are there, uh, what are they up to, what kind of relation they, they have with the Taliban and how this will uh, evolve in the future. And the, the Russians, uh, for what you can get from them, which is difficult, of course, to get something explicit uh, from them. But my sense is that they, they, they are overall satisfied 
uh, with the cooperation they had with the Taliban against Islamic State, especially in the Northwest, where they credited the Taliban essentially with crushing the, the Islamic State in the Northwest. So called the Kabul has brought the situation trying to present that as a successor, but there was largely the Taliban who defeated the Islamic State in the region. Of course, the presence were not as strong as the Northeast, but it was significant at one point. So they, they see that at least they can, you know, trust the Taliban to actively fight the Islamic State and to be more effective at doing that than the Afghan government has ever been. And that's not only in the North, but elsewhere in the country as well. According to the relation with Al-Qaeda, uh, between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, is more controversial. And I think I agree with uh, Jennifer that the interest of the Taliban at this point is, uh, yeah, to contain them, to corral them, if you like, keep them there, uh, tell them clearly, you know, you're not allowed to do crazy things, you know, but you can stay, and then we see. And they're trying to sign agreement. The Islamic movement has signed an agreement with the Taliban where it commits itself not to expose jihad, so to say. But, you know, so only the fact that the Kurdish are comrade in arms that fought alongside the Taliban, many died fighting for the Taliban cause. So within the Taliban ranks, many argue we cannot betray them, uh, including many senior military leaders. But it's also the fact that, you know, they, are, they, they provide use of leverage vis-a-vis -vis the Central Asian, vis-a-vis -vis Washington, vis-a-vis -vis, you know, a number of other countries. So contain them, but if you like also keep them in reserve in case, you know, the, 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 other, the other side does not deliver what the Taliban want, which is legitimization, which is, uh, of course, open borders and whatever might uh, turn up in the future. So I think this is a Taliban strategy. Uh, actually, Al-Qaeda is not signing an agreement with the Taliban. Uh, they've resumed negotiation recently, but they're more reluctant. But this, the new is signed. Some other Central Asian group like Imam Bukhari Jamiat is not signed. It's still work in progress. But you know, whether they sign or not, I think the Taliban have no, are not in a hurry to crack down on them in the near future. I think you know, they can easily find a niche for themselves. And of course, some of them, not only in the Northeast, have been helping the Taliban uh, in, in the recent battles or in, in controlling territory because of uh, the shortage of manpower the Taliban are, are facing. So they're useful right now and probably will be useful uh, also in the future. I, I don't think there's any uh, risk right now of, you know, for the Central Asian countries, whether from the Taliban, but also from the Central Asian jihadists is not something that uh, can happen in the short term. It's not that simply you enter into, Uzbekistan uh, would be very difficult because the border is more a river, you know, so there's only one bridge. But even Tajikistan, you know, something you can mount easily and they know very well because all the attempts have done in the past have failed, you know, to establish a foothold, solid foothold in Tajikistan. Uh, they know that it's not something you can improvise. Uh, they start from a very low level, you know, the, uh, the kind of uh, network that been able to build in Tajikistan for some time have collapsed. Uh, there's not much there. They can, you know, uh, offer an opportunity for, you know, rapid uh, increasing activities. So I think they're probably realistic about the fact that in any case, this is a long-term project and they will have to uh, see how it works out with the Taliban. And the Taliban, as I say, the priority is getting legitimacy internationally. They know the country can be run without money. You know, the state will collapse without substantial, you know, billions of dollars of aid coming from, from outside. Uh, and of course, the economy has to get going. You know, if the borders are closed, the economy collapses already not in a great shape, you know, so they can't afford. And this is essentially that there's something that the political leadership faces. I think the big issue is and I will end on this because the words is not time for the debate, is whether the political issue of the Taliban will be able or is able to retain control of uh, its fighters and its military leaders. Because whereas in Badakhshan, they seem to have been quite uh, disciplined, you know, and situations to be under control, already in Takar is a bit more complicated, but if you go to the South, it's much more complicated, you know. Uh, there have been attacks on NGOs, executions of NGO staff, which definitely not being authorized by the leadership. And now, you know, the NGO commission, the Taliban is reporting a number of commanders asking for measures to be taken, but the leadership is reluctant now to, you know, uh, get involved in this because they need the fighters, they need the military leaders to fight, you know, not, not to be put on trial. Uh, so they're, they're struggling to retain control. Some fighting in the cities was not authorized by the leadership. You know, some of the military commanders overstepped uh, their mandate. 
uh, I think there is a serious risk of the situation getting out of control. And of course, you know, this, uh, the Taliban are very stretched in terms of manpower, so they can't afford right now to isolate or to quarantine even the most radical commanders. And they need all of them. That's why they brought in even uh, not only TDP, but you know, they're bringing in more volunteers from Pakistan, but they also brought in the Central Asian. We've not been fighting together with the Taliban for quite some time. There's something not completely new, but new relative to what was happening for the last two or three years. You know? So they are throwing everything they, and that they had into the battle. And so maintaining discipline, you know, basically is a military commander's market now, not a political leader's uh, market. You know? And it, of course, if the conflict continues, if there is no ceasefire or no uh, successful, you know, no, no, no progress in negotiations, if this continues indefinitely, it's more and more likely that the military leadership will be able to assert itself vis-a-vis -vis the political leadership. And that becomes more unpredictable because these are the people who are more skeptical about uh, the need to have an, a running economy. They don't have the understanding, you know, the sophistication to understand that, you know, the economy has something that to take into account, that international relations are important, you know. These are people for the, the 14, the age of 14, they understand very little except fighting. Uh, and they've seen a lot of violence, they've seen a lot of their commoners being blown to pieces, you know, and the, the institute is going for, for revenge, essentially. So that's going to be difficult, I think, for the Taliban leadership to manage in the future. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Antonio, for this uh, great analysis. Yeah, I didn't want it to stop any of you, even if I knew we would have little time for the question, because I think the three presentations were really fascinating and people need this kind of information and, and we're more interested in listening to you maybe than uh, having the, the discussion, but the chat has been very active. There have been a lot of conversation going on. And so I can see kind of three lines of, of discussion arriving. One, uh, maybe turn toward Melanie asking if she could give more details or go a little bit even more deeper about women's status. I mean, you already talked about that, Melanie, but if there are other things you could, you could mention and the, really the, the cross-border activities uh, uh, on the bridge and the, the markets and, and how life, how everyday life is, is, is working. And then a lot of question about geopolitics and how all the kind of big international and regional actors will be, uh, are reacting. And so Antonio already uh, mentioned uh, Russia, Iran. There is of course the question of the role of the US in trying to create new partnership with the Central Asian state, maybe in helping them preparing themselves. So if uh, maybe Jennifer Antonio could address the, the question of the potential revival of a US uh, Central Asia military partnership around that change of situation. And also last kind of direction, we discussed a lot about Tajikistan, very little about Turkmenistan. Uh, uh, and so any kind of information about uh, Turkmenistan would be also uh, very much welcome. I have to say just the first event of a series we will be doing uh, as long as needed. So in a few weeks, we will be meeting for another event and, and we will try to go uh, deeper in some of uh, these questions, both on Turkmenistan and, and on the kind of the regional geopolitical reconfiguration, and of course, a lot of question about China also. So maybe as we have only 10 minutes, I will give you the floor back for whatever you may have to discuss around this kind of local perspective, US Central Asia partnership, uh, China, and, and the, the Turkmenistan question for whatever information we, we may have on, the, on, the, on Turkmenistan. Melanie, would you like to begin? Yes. Um, yeah, thank you very much for all these questions. First of all, um, so I was looking very quickly at the chat. Um, I'd like, um, I, I saw some comments about, uh, yeah, the, the, the violence. Um, I'd like to make it very clear. What I, what I was mentioning was um, that it, the, the situation is calm along the border in the northeastern part of Badakhshan. Um, of course, we should not downplay the violence that the Taliban are using in other parts um, of Afghanistan. Um, so, so of course, there's violence used by the Taliban, and uh, Antonio mentioned that. Um, but what I was uh, talking about was mainly along the border, in the in the northeastern part of uh, of Afghanistan. Um, about the the situation for women, um, 
it's uh, again I was talking about the, the Ismaili communities um, and the fact that um, it was unprecedented to see the Taliban implementing um, you know rules um, targeting the, the freedom of women um, and so everything's very new for them right to be chaperoned and to to cover their their heads and you know to be um, to be under these um, sort of very extreme rules it's, it's new What's going to happen? Um, it's very hard to say. Again, uh, I don't know if uh, the any like human human rights NGOs will have access to to these areas to sort of like um, you know help. Um, I think it's, it's very uh, unlikely. I think is just going to adjust. And, and again, um, I, I'm I have a hard time answering questions like that because it's it's been it's been less than a month that the Taliban have been there. So we really don't know what's, what's gonna happen. We, but what we know for sure is, is that the first rules they implemented were targeting um, women. So they're, they're the first, uh, of course, victims of the, of, of the Taliban rules. Now about the cross-border um, life at the cross-border, um, life in the cross-border areas. Um, so um, I, was, I was along the border before the Taliban were there and right after as well. Uh, I couldn't see um, uh, a lot of change actually because the, the, the cross-border bridges have been closed ever since 2022 because of COVID. Um, so the, the cross-border markets and the cross-border bridges were, were closed in Badakhshan because of the pandemic. That was the official line of the government. And it was very, very, it's, it's been very, very um, uh, hardly impacting uh, the population, both in Tajikistan and Afghanistan. It's hitting them in terms of, you know, financial um, like access to um, to cheap goods uh, on the Afghan markets. Now they have, in Tajikistan they have to buy um, Tajikistani stuff for a much uh, higher price. Um, it's um, forbidding, uh, you know, relatives to visit uh, one another. It's uh, it, it has a, a lot of different impacts on the communities, both in Afghanistan and in Tajikistan. And I can tell you. Um, that the people along the border really want the bridges to, uh, uh, to reopen and the cross-border markets to reopen um, because they, they want to, to have all the opportunities that those uh, infrastructure uh, are, are bringing. And, um, and also there are cross-border programs in terms of uh, health. Um, doctors are used to cross the border um, to go um, to Afghanistan. Um, Afghan patients used to cross the border to, to be treated in, uh, in Tajikistan. That's not going on. Um, it's everything's on hold, um, but it, it has been on hold since the pandemic started. So, um, so the, the, the fact that the Taliban arrived is, is another element to take into account. But um, the, 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 the fact that life was kind of um, stopped at the you know the cross border um, life was stopped is, is not new, um, and um, and also it's hard to uh, to make a general assessment. Um, because there's one bridge that's functioning, um, and it's the one that it's in. It's in the Khatlon province of Tajikistan. This is the only bridge that's functioning. The other ones are not uh, active. Um, so the situation is very different from you know one um, this bridge to uh, all the other bridges. So so again, it's hard to say at you know along the entire border of Afghanistan, everything's the same. It's not true. Um, so, so again, uh, I'm going back to being careful with information and um, and really listening to to the voices of, of the you know the locals. Um, I'll leave it here because there are, um, my colleagues have to answer as well. Thank you so much, Melanie. And we can go over uh, our time for a few minutes because I think the interest is really very high. Uh, Jennifer. Yeah, so just in, in terms of some of the geopolitical issues, I you know I think it's been sort of well documented that uh, Afghanistan is this one area where the uh, interests and uh, incentives of the United States, Russia, and China actually align quite well. So despite really bad relations right now between the United States and Russia, uh, there's definite mutual interest in. Um, you know, preventing conflict spillover in Central Asia. But the Central Asian states themselves are so quite vulnerable to all these geopolitical machinations. And, you know, it was really interesting that, that the Taliban went to Moscow, um, it was a couple of weeks ago, and they signed this letter and they, they told Russia that they wouldn't allow, um, they, they had no, uh, what, no territorial, um, goal. They, they would honor Russia's border with Afghanistan. <laughs> 
which was the Central Asian states, right? Not Russia's border, but it was this acknowledgement that um, Central Asia was their area of influence. So I think as Antonio has pointed out, the way that Russia is brokering uh, these relations inside of, of Afghanistan is really uh, something that we should continue to pay attention to. Um, you know, a lot of people have been asking this question about potential U.S. military bases in, in Central Asia. I don't think we're seeing any evidence of that. We've seen these media reports. And I imagine many people who are on this call have a better sense in Washington about, you know, the reality of, of U.S. actually taking Russia up on its its generous offer uh, to co-host, um, uh, you know, U.S. intelligence assets at at their bases um, in Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. I think that's one thing for us to remember as well. People have talked about the the uh, U.S. You know, troops leaving uh, Afghanistan, and there's a security vacuum in the region. And you know, I think we often forget that there's seven thousand Russian troops in Tajikistan alone. And that's not to speak of the, their presence in Kyrgyzstan. So Russia has this really robust military presence. I think the question is, you know, is China content to have Russia um, really acting on behalf of its own security interests? I don't think that there's, um, you know, the U.S. has lost a lot of credibility in the region. I don't think the U.S. is really seen at this point as a quite a reliable partner. Um, you know, I. The Central Asian governments, of course, I think to some extent would be keen on some military cooperation, but uh, you know nothing like that we saw, you know, during uh, the Karshi Karshi Hanabad Air Base and those kinds of partnerships that we saw in Tajikistan and Uzbekistan 20 years ago. I think the U.S. really has a credibility issue, and a lot of countries, you know, in the region may be not willing uh, to sacrifice. Um, you know, on behalf of the U.S. in that regard. So I, I'm not, I don't think that we're going to see any kind of major U.S. presence in Central Asia anytime soon. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Antonio, the floor is yours for the concluding remarks. President, <laughs> China, um, there are different views about what China is doing, but if you believe the Taliban, what the Taliban says is that, uh, and I'm, I'm, translating what they say, because of course what they say is much more convoluted, but basically they say they see the Chinese as less uh, a bit wary of Iranian and Russian brewmanship. Uh, they think that what the uh, Iranians and the Russians are doing is risky, you know, that could derail, and they'll be worried about that. And of course they don't have the same kind of, you know, they don't have a tradition having clients and allies inside Afghanistan that they can trust and marry to the Taliban, so to speak, you know. So also for them, this kind of route is not is not open. They do say that the Chinese uh, basically decided to buy a stake in in the Taliban uh, and provide some funding, but they seem to be more interested in trying to put the uh, some kind of negotiation back on back on track. You know whether that is with the government in Kabul or with the old Mujahideen uh, separately from Ghani and his administration. Uh, probably they are not too concerned about that, but what they want is to have, uh, rather than having a lot of bilateral deals between the Taliban and actors in different regions, which probably arguably has a risk of state collapse in the future, uh, implicit in it, uh, they would rather see something more uh, comprehensive happening, you know, with the big coalition of faction and groups and the Taliban coming together and reaching some kind of more comprehensive national level uh, deal. So I think, you know, essentially the Chinese are more cautious uh, and I think they are interested in uh, betting on both horses, you know, or any, any horse in the race, you know, they would rather uh, be on all sides in the conflict and make sure that whoever ends up on top uh, is not too far from China in terms of alignments and interests. And uh, I agree that, you know, with regard to uh, the whole of Russia, uh, America, uh, United States and Central Asia, uh, I think at this point, you know, the perception locally will be that better not challenge the Russian and the Chinese by having an unauthorized for sure relationship uh, with Americans or inviting the American over. I think it wouldn't be very popular in Beijing uh, or in Moscow, uh, of course, if they're not on board and I don't think they will be on board, you know. I'll stop here, thanks. 
Wonderful where we are finishing just on time. That was really a fascinating discussion and I'm very grateful to our three speakers for coming with so much information and analysis and kind of critical distance toward what we are usually reading and, and, and hearing about what is happening on the ground. I think that's really where, where scholarship is showing its best on uh, this ability to comment current events with this kind of uh, uh, distance and, and, and analytical perspective. As I said, we will be, the, so the event is recording, it will be available on our YouTube channel, we will make the podcast, it will be, there will be a transcript, so everybody who will be in need can have a look again at the what we have been discussing here. And as I said, we will be continuing having other events in August, looking at different uh, aspects of the this, this ongoing uh, transformation of the, the Afghanistan-Central Asia relations. So once again, thank you everybody for this uh, being with us today, wonderful audience and discussion, and, and a very big, big thank you to our three uh, speakers for their great presentation. Thank you all and, and hope to be in touch very soon for, for continuing this discussion. Thank you, Marlene. Thank you so much.